0: Well, you can take your Bibles and open them now to First Peter. Time has finally come to start into a new book of the Bible. Not long ago, we finished Titus. It's always nice to go through a short book of the Bible, because then you finish and you get that feeling of accomplishment. And I trust and hope that Titus was encouraging and instructive and edifying for you. And I'm sure First Peter will will be the same. It's just 105 verses divided into five chapters. It's also relatively short, but it finds itself to be a favorite among many Christians. It's accessible to any. It's helpful to all. And so this morning, let's go ahead and read the first two verses opening up this letter, the first letter of Peter. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In the opening verses of 1 Peter, he provides a pretty typical introduction, author, audience, a greeting. But he really expands the introduction. He gives a very theologically rich greeting. And what we're actually going to do is come back next week and look at this very theologically rich greeting. But it starts off with the first word, Peter, the author. And this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. Whenever I start into a new book, whenever it's appropriate, i like to first do a study on the author himself, the man who wrote I like to do a little study, a little biographical sketch, you could say. In the past, I've done one on the Apostle John, and I found it just myself to be really fun and instructive to get to know this guy's life throughout the New Testament. And Peter, he only wrote two letters in the New Testament, so now is the perfect time to pause and let's look at Peter's life from Scripture. Let's study his biography. Before we study this letter, we need to know the man who who wrote it so that we can understand some of the the thoughts and the feelings that surely went into 1 Peter. We need to know what shaped Peter so that we can come to know what shaped 1 Peter, the letter. And So this morning, what I really want us to do is just to ask, who was Peter? Cities are named after him. Churches are named after him. Colleges are named after him. Hospitals are named after him. At the same time, though, if you asked a random person on the street who is Peter, they probably think of him like heaven's bouncer. He's the guy standing guard at the pearly gates, and if you want to get in, you better check with Peter, make sure your name's on the list, that's how they think of him. But who really was the Apostle Peter? And thankfully, the Bible's not silent. In fact, we probably know more about Peter than any other New Testament figure except Christ. So like I said, what I want us to do this morning, it's, it's a little unique. Normally we study a single text with a nice outline, but today we're going to look at several texts, no outline, but my goal is simply to draw for you a biographical sketch of the Apostle Peter. I want, to, I want you to truly come to know the Apostle Peter so that you may gain insight into his writings and also so that you may be encouraged by his example. That's where we're headed. I want you to truly come to know the Apostle Peter so that you may gain insight into his writings and so that you may be encouraged by his example. That's it. Very simple. If you're a note taker, sorry I've got no outline for you, but grab your Bibles because we're going to be really all over the place when it comes to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to start off, I want to show you how it all began. I want to show you how Peter got his start as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you may be surprised by this. A lot of people are surprised. A lot of Christians, they get it wrong, but without even knowing it. For instance, if I were to ask you, how long did Jesus minister on earth? How long was his active earthly ministry after his baptism by John the Baptist? You'd probably say three years. years. And you're right. Yeah, pretty much three years His active ministry of of teaching and leading was about three years. Now, if I asked you, how long did the disciples follow Jesus around? You'd probably again say, well, three years. But what if I told you that's not entirely true? What if I told you that Jesus did not have permanent disciples until essentially his second year of ministry? The disciples were only with Jesus on a permanent basis for just over two years, not three. Did you know that? Do I at least have you intrigued? Okay, well then I'll show this to you. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Let's go back to where it all began. You get this when you, you piece together a chronology from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just some good Bible studies, all it takes. I bring this up though, it's going to help us get to know Peter. That's why we're doing this. We want to go to John chapter 1, because that's where Jesus attracts his very first disciples. And Peter is among them. So here's how the chronology works. I'm going to try and build a little timeline for you of Christ's life to help you track along. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three of them, they all record Christ's baptism by John. And that's the official beginning of his ministry. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. What happens next? The 40-day wilderness temptation. After this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all skip ahead to John the Baptist's arrest and then Christ's ministry around Galilee. That's what they do. But John, he's writing his gospel much later. He decides to come back and fill us in on what happened in between those events. And a lot happened. So we come to John 1, and first John tells us more about John the Baptist. In his ministry, but now we get to verse 35. So look there, John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and, and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it is about the tenth hour. So first, you can stop there. We've got these two guys. We don't know who they are yet, and they're disciples of John the Baptist. But then John points them to Jesus. He says, there he is. That's, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. And so they go to Jesus to, to investigate, to see who this guy was, to find out more about him. Who are these two disciples? Well, it's not Peter, but look at the next verse, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which translated is Peter. So one of those two disciples was Andrew. And after spending just a day with Jesus, he he knew. "This This is the Messiah. We found him. So he goes, he gets his brother Peter, and he says, we found him. He brings him to Jesus. And I love this. Jesus just looks at him. He just looks at him. And I just picture a gaze where Christ is just staring into his soul and looking right through Peter. And with this look, Jesus calls Simon and he gives him a new name, indicating that he is to become new in Christ. And so here we already get some background into the Apostle Peter. First off, his name wasn't Peter, it's Simon. His original name was Simon. It's a very common name back then. But Christ gives him a new name, Kephas, which is Aramaic. You translate that into Greek, you get Petros. We get Peter from that. But either way, or Peter, whichever one, it means the same thing, rock. That's what the word means. He's giving him the name rock. Now file that away in the back of your mind. We're going to come back later and unpack a little bit of the significance of, of his new name as the rock. But first, let me sketch a little more of the picture for you. As you start piecing together these scriptures in the Gospels, you learn that Peter and his brother... They were born in the the small town of Bethsaida. It's a tiny little town, Galilee. Pretty soon, though, the whole family moves to Capernaum, which is a city on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And there they begin the family business of fishing. They start into the fishing business. And apparently Peter was, was successful. He had a successful fishing venture. He owned his own boat, and he owned a large house all by himself. Later we learn that Peter was married as Christ healed his wife's mother. And it's not in the Bible, but tradition tells us he had kids. Don't know for sure, but it seems to be the case. So here's a recap. we got Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're both successful fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And then one day they hear this rumor. There's this guy named John the Baptist, and he's preaching down near the Jordan River to the south. And if you remember, the Sea of Galilee, it's up north. The Dead Sea is down south. The two are connected by the Jordan River, about 60 miles apart. So they're up north. John the Baptist is down south. They hear about him. They say, let's go check him out. So they go down south near the Jordan to check out this guy, John the Baptist. Pretty soon, though, Andrew and then Simon, they find themselves not following John anymore, but now they're following this guy, Jesus. And that's all. That's John chapter 1. So what happens next? Well, they follow Jesus. They, they go around with him for a few days. So we get chapter 2, John chapter 2, first few verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So now Jesus, he travels north back up to the Galilee region with his disciples, including Peter, for the wedding. And you, you might remember the story. This is where Jesus performs his first miracle. You remember what it was? He turned the water into wine. And you look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, This was the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Remember, that's Peter's new hometown. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples And they stayed there a few days. So this is how it really begins. This is how it begins with Jesus and Peter. This is the first account. This was Peter's first exposure to Jesus. And it's the first miracle they witnessed. That's how it began. A couple months go by. And then Jesus goes on a trip. He heads back south to Jerusalem for for his first Passover there during his ministry. And this was an eventful trip. He cleanses the temple. He speaks with Nicodemus. He ministers in Judea. He travels through Samaria. He speaks to that woman by the well. He evangelizes the region Sychar. And then he finally returns back to Galilee. He kind of goes down, makes a little loop, comes back up. Now, did Peter go with Jesus on this trip? We don't know for sure. But most likely, not. He's not mentioned. But here's what we do know for sure. At some point, either before the trip or after, if he did go, Peter and Andrew go back to fishing. At some point before or after this trip, Peter and Andrew go back to fishing. They go back to their family business. And it's not like they were being disobedient or rebellious or they just didn't want to follow Jesus anymore. It's just that Jesus had not called them to be his permanent disciples at this point. They had families, they had businesses. And so Jesus let them return. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He says, come with me. He does a short tour of Galilee. Just, they stay north, just not long. And then after that, what happens? They go back to fishing again, another time. That's recorded in Matthew 4, by the way. And you have to understand, this is actually fairly common. Jesus was a traveling rabbi. He was an itinerant minister. That's what he did. And he would travel around and disciples would follow him for a time. But after a while, they would go back to their livelihoods. They would have to. And this happened with his disciples a couple of times. But then we come to Luke chapter 5. So turn over there with me. Luke chapter 5. This is where things change. Because now Jesus is going to raise the stakes. He's going to call them now to be his Permanent disciples. This is going to be their new job. Their new job, 24/7, is going to be to, to follow Jesus. No more going back to fishing. Luke chapter five. We'll, we'll read a good a good chunk here. Start at verse one. Now it happened while that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's just another name they had for it. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Okay, we got Peter's boat. And he asked him, Simon, to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water. Let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we we worked hard all night and we caught nothing. But I'll do as you say, and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Stop there for a second. What's going on? Why were they so amazed here? Why why did Peter fall at the feet of Jesus? It's because he knew. He just doubted the Lord. He just denied the Lord's power, and he knew it. He was not worthy to be in Christ's presence, but Christ accepted him anyway this however would not be the last time peter denies jesus but we'll come back to that let's finish the verse verse 10 and jesus said to simon do not fear from now on you will be catching men when they had brought their boats to land they left everything and followed him normally when you hear this passage preached for instance it's always made out to seem like this is the first time Peter meets Jesus, like this is their first encounter, and it preaches really well. Like, oh, here's Peter, and he just meets this guy, Jesus, and, and Jesus calls him to follow him, and Peter just just like that drops everything and follows him. This says, what great faith? Well, okay, yeah, he did have great faith, but it's not the first time they met. They've known each other for some time by this point. But it was different. This time Christ made an official call, a permanent call, No more would Peter and the others return to their previous occupation. They had returned to fishing for the last time. It was not acceptable for them to be fishers of fish anymore. Now they were going to become fishers of men. He called, they followed, without question. And this begins the real discipleship of Peter and the others. And so like I said, this is how Peter gets his start with Jesus, and, and like I said before also, what if I told you that Jesus has already been ministering for almost a year by the time that he permanently calls Peter here in Luke chapter 5. Somewhere between eight months and a year have already gone by, and Christ's first year of ministry, it's almost over. And he's just now getting around to permanently calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He hasn't even called the twelve yet. That comes in another couple months. But you see that from this point on, it is true, Peter will not leave Christ's side for the next two years. So I bet you've never heard or studied or just put that together in your Bible, how Peter and these other disciples got their real start in following Christ. They knew him for a while, and then they they became his permanent disciples. That's how Peter got his beginning in the business of following Jesus. And one thing is true, his life would never be the same. Once Peter put his hand to the plow and accepted Christ's call, there was no turning back. It's probably safe to say that he also didn't have much of an idea what was in store for him. Over the next two years or so of Christ's ministry, we come to learn a lot about Peter's character. And what we come to find is that Peter is kind of like a a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's got two sides to him. On the one side, Peter is a typical Galilean, well-meaning, zealous, courageous. He's got this passion about him, a zeal, a fire. He's got this boldness to him. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus was preaching hard truth to the crowd. The crowds came because he was doing miracles and he was feeding everybody, handing out free fish and bread. They came for the food. But then when he started preaching hard truth, they all left. They all left him. In John chapter 6, verse 66, says this as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore, Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? He says to the twelve, Who answers back? Peter answers back, and he says, Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that is a huge display of faith and devotion from Peter. That's courageous. Everyone was leaving. He's like, we're not going anywhere. We're staying. We're following you. But there's another side to Peter, a side of weakness, a side of cowardice. It's almost like the changing of the tide. Peter can go from being bold and powerful to kind of weak and scared. In one moment, he can be the strongest of the twelve. In the next moment, he can be the weakest. He's the first to express his faith. He's also the first to succumb to fear. He's a walking contrast of courage and cowardice. That's Peter. perfect example of this is Matthew 14. Let's turn there. Matthew 14. I know you know this one. This is where Jesus walks on water. He goes to the mountain to pray. He tells the disciples, you guys run along ahead of me. I'll catch up with you later. Go across the sea to the other side. They do that. They're crossing the seats. In the middle of the night, a storm comes. And as they're out in the middle of the sea, it's kind of rough waters, Jesus comes out to them. They're having a hard time rowing. And we'll pick it up, Matthew 14, in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Who speaks up? Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And stop there. Who, who got out of the boat? Who's the guy that got out of the boat? The other disciples, they were in the boat. They stayed in the boat. They were scared still. But it's only Peter who gets out of the boat out of the boat. In boldness and faith and courage, he stepped out into the dark and turbulent waters. And this is Peter, the man of courage. And verse 30. But, but seeing the wind, He became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and then he succumbed to fear. And this is Peter, man of courage, man of cowardice. And time and time again, we see this contrast. It's, it's, It's his story, this contrast to Peter. In Matthew 16, Peter alone confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Then right after that, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus for saying that he was going to die. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter, he's right there with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, I'm going to stay awake with you. I'm going to keep watch with you. What happens? He falls asleep. He couldn't even stay awake for an hour. Just after that, the mob comes to arrest Jesus and Peter's the guy who pulls out a sword and just starts swinging. Well, when that doesn't work, he runs away with everyone else and abandons Jesus. That, that's his contrast over and over again. If you want to get to know Peter, Christ's words of him in the garden are perfect. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's Peter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and that's what Peter, God, or that's what Christ said to him. And no incident is as telling or as significant as Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. So now let's turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. Got to see this. There's one event that forever altered and shaped Peter. This would be it. This denial of Christ stayed with Peter for the rest of his life. Is no earlier, Jesus, he predicted that all of his disciples would fall away when he was crucified. And Peter said back to him, like, no, I will never fall away. And Jesus replied to Peter, and he said, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what did Peter say back? He said, no way. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Even if all these others deny you, I will not deny you. He said it. That's his own words. came from his mouth. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Luke 22, pick it up at verse 55. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. Christ has been arrested. He's been on trial. They're now in the courtyard of the temple. Peter's just hanging out. Verse 56. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said... This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. Peter said, Man, I am not. Verse 59, After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, No, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, rooster crowed. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. After Peter denied his master, Jesus just looked at him. And just like he had looked at him, years prior when he called him to be his disciple the first time Jesus looked at Peter changed his life and here it is again it just takes a look from Jesus to forever change Peter's life really this look crushed him here we witness Peter being broken and God was humbling him God was bringing him low and Peter didn't deny because he lost his faith he denied because he succumbed to fear And all throughout this episode, Peter became well acquainted with fear. He became well acquainted with what outside pressure can do to someone. And side note, that will really come up when we get into 1 Peter. But thankfully, after God humbles Peter, he doesn't leave him down. He restores Peter. You see, God brought Peter to the lowest valley through his denial of Jesus. And this was his lowest low. He hated himself... He loathed himself after this. You can just sense it. I mean, how could he do such a thing? What a, what a worthless disciple. He didn't deserve to be a disciple. He wasn't good enough. This was just terrible. How could he? How could he do this? How could God use him now? And his spirit was just broken. He just had a broken spirit. But there's good news. The good news is that God is in the business of using broken vessels. It's almost like a prerequisite. Christ died. He was crucified. Then he rose from the dead. And after that, he appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem. He met them in Jerusalem for a short time, talking to them, encouraging them. But then he said, don't stay here. Go to Galilee. I'll meet you in Galilee. We'll talk some more. It's basically what he said. And Peter, you could tell Peter, it it just wasn't the same. He loved his Lord, of course. He was excited about the resurrection, of course but his spirit was still broken. You get the picture that after Jesus looked at Peter and he denied him, Peter just couldn't bring himself to look back at Jesus. Too much shame. But Jesus was not finished with Peter. Here we go again. John 21. That's the next one. We've got to look at this one. John chapter 21. What happens next? Jesus has risen from the dead. He briefly appeared to the disciples. He says, don't stay in Jerusalem. Go to Galilee. Now here we are. We're in Galilee. Jesus wanted them back in their old stomping ground where they all started off together. A long section, but it's worth it. Let's start at verse 1 of John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's again another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. So here's the story. Verse 2 Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. And just stop there, because this is amazing. What just happened? Jesus just rose from the dead. He just resurrected, and they've already seen him at this point, so they know it's true. Everything he said was true. The resurrection is true. So what does Peter do? He goes back to fishing. But no, Peter, you do not get to go back to fishing. Jesus already told you, your days of fishing are over. And the next part is my favorite, verse 3. They went out, And got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. It's like, you better believe they caught nothing. God was not going to let them catch any fish. By the way, I tell this to myself when I don't catch any fish. It's like, God just doesn't want me to catch fish. But Christ did not call them to be his apostles so that they could return to fishing. But here comes Jesus, verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, meaning they fished all night, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, of that term of endearment, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no, and I can picture Jesus being like, that's right, you don't have any fish. (laughs) And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Stop right there. Wait a second. This sounds familiar. Does this sound familiar to you? This is not the first time Jesus said this. Back in Luke 5, which we read, the exact same thing happened. This is the exact same thing. It's just being played out a second time. When Christ primarily called his disciples back in Luke 5, he told them, cast your net over the side and you'll get a huge catch. Back then, though, Peter doubted Jesus. He said, well, okay, Jesus, we just spent the whole night fishing. We didn't catch anything, but you know, whatever, we'll put our net in. We'll humor you. And they had a huge catch. And here we are again. It's the same thing. Peter and the others, they just spent the whole night fishing. They caught nothing. And Jesus said to them, throw your net in, you'll get a huge catch. This time, though, we don't hear any doubts from Peter, so that's good. Verse 6, so they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And right when that happened, they knew that's Jesus. They knew that's the Lord. Verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And I love this too. Peter doesn't care about the fish anymore. They just had a huge catch. He doesn't care. He, he, just, he doesn't want to wait. And once again, you see, it's the same thing. This time, he may not be walking on the water, but he's the only one who gets out of the boat to go to Jesus. Verse 8. But the other, other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish which you have now caught,' Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. The first time, the net tore. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You can stop there. Jesus was appearing to them a third time, but he's not done with Peter. He still has an agenda here. He knew that Peter needed to be restored. Peter had denied him three times. Christ is now going to restore him three times. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. I have to admit, I was very tempted to stop and dive into this passage, really explain it, because it's a very rich passage, there's many plays on words, Jesus used different words for love, different words for shepherding, different words for sheep, but to get into the fun nuance of this passage would take about, you know, 10 minutes that we don't have. So I just want to cut to the chase. The bottom line here in this passage is that Jesus is restoring Peter. That's what he's doing. He's restoring Peter in a couple of ways. First... He's restoring Peter's broken spirit. His spirit was crushed with with guilt and shame. That was making him ineffective. It was taking him out of the game, so to speak. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that although denying him was wrong, his love for Christ is what mattered most. Peter's not worthy to be Christ's disciple. No one is. But Jesus wanted to use him anyway. Secondly, Jesus is restoring Peter's position of leadership. He asked Peter if he loves him more than these, and he's not talking about the fish. He's talking about the other disciples. You see, Peter very much was the leader of the disciples, the twelve. He was their leader. His name comes first in every single list. He's their spokesman, their representative of almost every occasion. And Jesus wanted him to be their leader. That was intentional. But it was Peter himself who swore of all the others that he would never deny. But when the time came, of all the others, Peter was the one who actually denied. And so his his position of leadership was just crushed. But here Jesus is restoring Peter to that position of leadership by affirming his true and greater love for him and by commanding him to look after the sheep. It's important to note that here, this would be the last time Peter would be called Simon by the Lord. Whenever Peter messed up, whenever he did something wrong, Jesus always called him by his old name, Simon. That was his old name. That was the name of his old self. But Jesus gave him a new name, Peter, the rock, which at first seems strange because his behavior was nothing like a rock during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. But here's the thing. Jesus has the power to turn broken clay into rock. And that's what he did with Peter. God gets the glory for the transformation that takes place in Peter's life. And after this restoration, he really starts living up to his name, the rock. Jesus resurrects. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven. Ten days later, the spirit comes down and Peter is never the same. He's got a new Peter. And truly now, he's their fearless leader. Truly now, nothing is going to make him deny the Lord. And truly now, he would rather die than stop preaching Christ. So we come to the book of Acts. You can turn over there if you want to the book of Acts. Did you know that the the title to Acts is really the Acts of the Apostles? And two apostles in particular take center stage. The second half, it's all about Paul. The first half, it's all about Peter. So now let's ask, what is Peter's life like after the ascension, the resurrection? What's Peter's life like after all this happened? What does he do? Well, I'm going to give you a, the, the quick summary tour of Acts chapter 1 through 15. Just listen along. In Acts chapter 1, Peter takes the lead to replace Judas as an apostle. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives the first public proclamation, 2,000 people are saved, or 3,000 are saved. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals the lame beggar, and then he preaches second time from the same place where he just two months earlier denied Jesus. 2,000 people are saved. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested by the same people who arrested Jesus, but then Peter preaches to them, and he defiantly tells them, we can't stop preaching Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, Peter deals with the treachery of Ananias and Sapphira. And then all of the disciples get arrested. They eventually stand before the the rulers. Who speaks up? Peter speaks up. He again defies them and says, we must obey God rather than men. They get beaten. Then they all get released. And now look at Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Just one verse. says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, Peter, he knew all too well the shame that comes from denying Christ's name. He's done with that. Now he's ready to embrace the shame that comes from proclaiming Christ's name. You see the difference? And if God never brought him to that lowest of low, he never would have been able to rejoice in the suffering. Through the rest of Acts until chapter 15, Peter continues to perform miracles, continues to teach and preach. But after James, the half brother of John, is executed by King Herod Agrippa I in AD 42 or 44, Peter leaves Jerusalem coming back once that we know of, and then he's gone. He's off the radar of the New Testament. We don't really know where he goes, what he does. We don't hear of his activity much, but we know for sure he's traveling, he's preaching. The next time he does pop up on our radar is when he's in Rome writing 1 Peter, somewhere between AD 62 and 64. Peter was definitely not in Rome, and Paul was there. Paul was imprisoned the first time, then he left, he got freed, he went away. Then Peter comes. Peter's in Rome, and he's preaching in Rome. And this is interesting, that the church historian Eusebius even tells us that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark at the request of Roman Christians who wanted a written memorial of the doctrine preached to them by Peter. And that's why many people call Mark Peter's Gospel. But Peter would not be in Rome for long, or rather he would not be alive in Rome for long. In the summer of AD 64, the psychotic Roman Emperor Nero staged a fire in Rome, which burnt down many of the buildings. He did it on purpose, but he blamed the Christians, used them as a scapegoat. And this began a large persecution of Christians in Rome, and Peter would not escape that persecution with his life. He died near the end of AD 64. One thing we know from every account, and there are several, every account from church history of Peter's martyrdom, they all say the same thing, that he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die and suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered. That's what they all say, he was crucified upside down. It's true or not, we don't know for sure, but we do know that he he knew. He was not worthy to follow and serve Christ. But Christ used him anyway. And that's that's a great theme of Peter's life. So that's it. That's the end of Peter's life. That's the end. And that's the end of this biographical sketch which Scripture leaves behind for us. But I said at the beginning, there's value to this. There's value in, in pausing to study the biography of Peter. What's the value? Well, twofold. One... Getting to know Peter's life and character like this really helps us to get to know his letter, 1 Peter. Getting to know Peter's life and his character helps us get to know 1 Peter. Intimately knowing the man who penned the letter adds color to the black and white pages. It gives us insight that would otherwise escape us. For instance, we now know that Peter was a a broken man. He was broken. He was humbled under the mighty hand of God. The hard way. But isn't that what makes a good minister? And Peter is writing to people who are likewise, they're starting to break. And they need someone who knows that brokenness to minister to them. Additionally, we find in 1 Peter all these, these several calls to strict holiness. Those calls come with love and compassion. How can that be? Well, It's because Peter, he had already stared his sin in the face. He knew all too well that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he dealt with his sin. Christ forgave him his sin. And then the saying is true. He who is forgiven much loves much. And Peter knew, he knew well just how much he was forgiven. That's why he can minister with so much love in 1 Peter. And as he comes to say, even love covers a multitude of sins. Also in First Peter, we see the heart of a true shepherd. And Jesus commanded him, remember the restoration, to shepherd the sheep. And he really brings that imagery out. He clings to that. But he always looks to Jesus as his chief shepherd. He cares for the flock and he wants other ministers to do the same. And then to cap it all off, Peter knew suffering. And he's writing to people who were suffering. The last 30 years of his life were marked by suffering. That's all he did. He had been through the valley. But those who have been through the valley and suffered like this, they make the best counselors. And Peter counsels us in 1 Peter about suffering more than any other place in the New Testament. And honestly, his instructions would seem smug and insensitive and arrogant, they're coming from someone who had never suffered. But they don't. Peter is speaking from first-hand experience. So we can take his counsel with the greatest seriousness and comfort. So already we can see, already, First Peter at a greater depth. Just knowing Peter already gives us a deeper understanding, a deeper meaning to the words behind First Peter. But on top of all this, Getting a bio of Peter not only helps us unpack 1 Peter, it also just encourages us in our daily walk. Just seeing the life of Peter, the example of Peter, encourages us in our day to day Christian walk. How? Well, I'll give you a couple of things to consider. First, consider consider the testimony his life leaves behind. You know, we learn that Simon was a weak man. His heart was there, but he, he was weak. He gave him the fear he wasn't strong enough. And he was a clay vessel. He was a broken clay vessel at that. But like I said before, God is in the business of making rocks out of clay. God's in the business of using broken, weak vessels for something glorious. Each one of us today is a broken vessel, You may realize it, you may not, but it's true. And Maybe you're thinking, you're not good enough to serve the Lord. Maybe you're just not good enough to be used by Him. If that's you, guess what? You're right. You're not good enough to serve or follow the Lord. No one is good enough. Peter wasn't good enough. But God can make you good enough. God likes to use... The weakest tools he can find so that his hands get the glory. So take a cue from Peter's example and and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Don't put your confidence in your own flesh. It will fail you. Put your confidence in God. He'll give you the grace. He'll supply you the power. So give your life over to serving him by trusting him. Just like Peter. And that's, that's, an for me at least, a huge encouragement that we can derive from Peter's life and Peter's example. Now here's another one. Maybe you're out there and you're discouraged because there's just too much sin in your life. And you know, you're, you're weighed down, you're burdened by your sin. Ever happened to you? Discouraged by all the sin in your life? And here again, you can take encouragement from Peter's example. We learn from Peter's life, not that sin is okay, but that God is patient with sinners who love him. Peter was a sinner just like the rest of us, but he loved the Lord. And God knew well, he knew better than Peter, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God knows the weakness of our flesh. This doesn't excuse the sin in your life. It doesn't make it okay, but Peter's denial was not okay. But we know that God is patient. And long-suffering with sinners. And we can take comfort and encouragement with that. God knows our frame. He knows we're dust. He knows we're sinners. He knows that he's dealing with sinful vessels. And yet Jesus still died to redeem us. So when you sin, it's not okay. There should be guilt and shame. But Christ redeems sinners. And Christ restores sinners who come to him, and he erases the guilt and the shame. So let that be a huge encouragement to you this morning. And we all have our sins, our failings, our shortcomings, but don't stay in your sin. Instead, focus on what Christ has done for you. Go to him to be restored, and then like Peter, just charge forth in boldness and following him. Well, there are surely many more lessons, many more instructions, many more encouragements to come from the life of Peter and from the letter of First Peter. We'll stop here for now, and I encourage you to join us next week when we actually get into the beginning of this wonderful letter, First Peter. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we we do thank you for the example left behind for us of Peter. He, he's not Christ. But to the degree that his life reflects the life of Christ, we can follow his lead, follow his example. We thank you for recording in Scripture even his failings, though, and his shortcomings, that we can understand not that sin is okay, not that failing before you is okay, but that you are gracious and loving and patient, kind, long-suffering with us. Because we're in the same boat. We are Peter. We are fallen, sinful, broken, clay vessels. We're not good enough. We can't serve you. We can't follow you. We're not good enough to be your disciples. We will fail. The flesh is weak. But we have a great God, and that's the story of Peter. He had a great God. He had a great Savior, and ours is the same, who can make something out of nothing. And so we thank you. We, we pause. We praise you. We, we thank you for that work you've done in our lives to use us. We pray for any here who are discouraged, and who have a broken spirit like Peter did, that you would encourage them. By what Christ has done. Christ has forgiven them on the cross if they would turn to him in faith and repentance. Their sins can be forgiven. They can be made right with you and be used by you. That's the key. So may we all leave here taking encouragement in our great Savior, rejoicing in what he has done for us. Look forward to the time we have in First Peter. May you open us to wonderful things in this letter, encouraging things, instructive things. We just leave here blessed now from your word. In your name we pray. Amen.